Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. Book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 8. As I look up, I realize that the Adamses are back, Michelle and the two children. So Steve is happy for that. Good to have you guys back, and we'll try to get, uh, and Jason Stickle also, who's sitting up here on the end, glaring at me. <laughs> Jason was with them in Peru. So, Lord willing, we'll get an update from you guys uh, maybe next Sunday, okay, about how your trip went. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> and let's just jump into reading in verse 1. The, the uh, topic is conflict, uh, and Corinth it was being settled in courtrooms, and Paul is responding to the fact that church members were going into a public setting to settle disputes among themselves. Verse 1, he says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your own brothers. Handling, resolving conflict in the context of church as family. That is the overriding theme of this passage of Scripture. One of the things that I'm finding as we work our way through Corinthians is this. Paul is picking up issues that are extremely difficult to address. His his teaching is clear. You don't don't come away from 1 Corinthians 6 saying, I wonder what Paul thinks about lawsuits amongst believers, about conflict amongst believers. But you do have this test that emerges. Do I believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do I believe that when it speaks and addresses issues like this, that it is speaking with authority? Okay? It's one thing to say, I believe what the Word of God says. It is another thing to take the practical teachings that we're seeing here, chapter 5 and chapter 6 and then chapter 7, and say, I really believe what the Bible says. Because the proof of whether I believe it or not will be found in how I respond to immorality in the context of church life. It'll be found in terms of how we respond to legal disputes in the context of church life. It'll be found in how we respond to marital commitments in the context of church life. See, I can say that I believe that this book is the Word of God, that when it speaks, God is speaking. But I often run into specific passages that make it difficult for me to put that conviction into practice. And so this morning, I want to press on us the implications of this text in regards to how we respond to and how we resolve conflicts that emerge in church life. One of the things that I think is very important for Christians to understand is this. 
every believer will face, in the context of church life, times of struggle and difficulty. Okay, if you're involved in a church family, it is not likely, it is true that you will face times of conflict. Okay, here's the definition of conflict. More than one person in one place at one time. At one time. Okay, if you have more than one person present, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have it with the love of your life. You're going to have it with the children in your life that you love. You're going to have it with brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to have it in your workplace. You're going to have tensions in your community. That's what newspapers, by and large, are all about, isn't it? All the various disputes that are part of living in a fallen world. So whenever I have one or more people together, I'm going to have a setting in which conflict is likely to occur. The fact that Paul addresses this in the book of 1 Corinthians, I believe is an indication that he anticipates not only that there is trouble in the church in Corinth, but that in the churches that read this letter, they will gain an understanding of how to respond to conflict in the context of their particular local church. So, if it's addressed in Scripture, it's there for a reason. It is addressing an issue that all of us are likely to face in our experience as Christians. Now, one of the things that, that becomes pretty clear from this text is that this idea of suing each other, of taking internal disputes into public courts, it appears that it is a fairly common practice for the church in Corinth. And so, you have to ask yourself this question. Why would that be the case in Corinth? Why would a church in the ancient Roman Greco culture tend towards having lawsuits in its midst? Why would that be the case? And the answer to that question is because the ancient world, especially the Greco-Roman world, was very much like New Jersey. Okay, Their people were quick to go to court to settle disputes, take their private disputes out into a public setting. That was a fairly common tendency amongst people at that time. Basically what had happened, the culture had seeped into the context of church life. And so Paul is responding to this tendency for the church to mimic the patterns that are present in the world. Okay, and one thing that becomes clear as you read through this, Paul is a little bit perturbed here. Okay, the tone of his writing clearly indicates that he is unwilling to tolerate these disputes that are present amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. When we face times of struggle, here's the question that emerges. Should believers take their disputes into secular settings to find resolution? Okay, that's the broader question. I want to narrow this down, however, to the question of how do we deal with conflict in the context of church life. Okay, the first thought I want to leave with you from verses 1 and verse 8 is this. Christians should not go to secular courts to settle their disputes. Okay, I think that becomes very clear from verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, and dispute here literally means kind of lawsuit, a legal concern... If you have that with each other, dare he take it before unbelievers for judgment instead of before the saints? Get down to verse 8. Why not rather be cheated? Why, uh, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your own brothers. End of verse 6. Instead, of, instead one brother goes to law, that is to court setting, against another, and this before unbelievers. Okay, so what is the issue? The issue is that Christians are going out of the secular realm to seek to settle their disputes. The first thought that Paul arrives at is this. Christians should not go out into the secular setting to settle internal 
disputes. And the way he starts out in verse 1 is very strong. Dare he take it before unbelievers. The idea is, how dare you step outside of the body of Christ and air dirty laundry when it could be dealt with within the context of the church family. And Paul's going to give reasons for why that is the case. In verse 1 when it says, before the ungodly, what does Paul mean? He's not necessarily giving a sweeping condemnation of people that don't know Christ. What he's saying is, there are people that don't have that Holy Spirit-driven desire for righteousness. And when you go to them to settle disputes within the context of church life, they don't have the same set of eyes. Their, their grid for determining what's right and wrong is vastly different. And so Paul says, when you have disputes among brothers and sisters in Christ, keep it as a family matter. About uh, two years ago, in our immediate community here, there was a dispute between a brother that lives here and a brother that lives in California. Uh, it was a fairly high-profile case, and there was a debate about how one's reputation was being used for financial advantage on the part of the other brother. Went into secular court. was front-page news in the newspaper. I don't know about you, but when I look at something like that, to me, there, there is no winner in that lawsuit. It's like beating up a sibling, okay? You won, but how do you go around and brag that you beat up a family member? Okay, you just... It's, it's an odd kind of thing. And what Paul's saying is this. <clears throat> Christians shouldn't use the legal system to settle issues that are between them as brothers and sisters in Christ. As a clarification, is Paul forbidding any access to courts? What do you think? I don't think so. Basically, what he's doing is prohibiting action between believers. He's not saying that a Christian should never participate in a court setting. I have jury duty at the end of the month. Okay? That I may be called to... Uh, listen to a lawsuit of some kind. Okay? Does it mean that I can't participate in that? Okay? I think the specific issue, and you have to narrow this down, the specific issue in this setting, okay, is two Christians, brothers or sisters, having a conflict, and what Paul is saying is that conflict should not be taken out to secular courts. Secondly, Christians are competent this is the key word. Christians are competent to play an active role in settling conflicts that arise in the context of church life. Okay, so don't take it outside into the legal realm. Christians have a level of competence in the body of Christ to deal with such disputes. Look at verse 2. And, and, and verse 1 is just kind of shock. How dare you take it outside? Why, Paul? Don't you know, verse 2, that saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, aren't you competent to judge trivial cases? And what is Paul doing? He's arguing from lesser to greater, or from greater to lesser, as, as verse 2 puts it. Okay? Saints will one day have a responsibility for governing over the affairs of the world. That is the teaching of Scripture. One day when Christ comes and establishes His kingdom, believers have a part in the governing of human affairs. Now, what is Paul saying? If one day God is going to entrust to you this large responsibility, then can't you deal with the, the struggle that is present between John and Tim? Kind of what he's saying. If you're going to take care of these larger issues, can't you deal with this? Okay, and there's this, how dare you take it out? Then verse 3, a fascinating passage of Scripture. Do you, know, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? I don't know what that does to you, okay? That blows my mind. 
Christians are going to have some degree of authority in the eternal kingdom of God where we are exercising authority over angelic beings. That blows my mind. I know from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 that angels are sent forth as ministering spirits that serve the body of Christ. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. In Luke chapter 22, we find Jesus being ministered to in His human form by angels. And there is some sense in which Paul is saying, you, as Christians, you underestimate the position that God has given you. And when you go into secular courts to settle your disputes, you are trashing who you are. Okay, who are, who are Christians? <clears throat> verse 1, he, at the end of the verse, he says, Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Who are saints? They're, they are the ones who one day will exercise authority in the governance of world affairs and will exercise authority over angels. Paul's saying, if you're going to do that, can you take care of these small disputes? Because of who you are. The Christian's identity, saints, those called by the grace of God, set apart by God, given a new outlook on life, given the indwelling Spirit of God, as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 is going to say, we are gifted by the Spirit of God so that we can bring benefit to the body of Christ at large. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 7 in this book, Paul says, You're, you, church in Corinth, are not lacking in any spiritual gifts. God has given you capacities that you're letting sit on the shelf. And as a result, when disputes arise, you put the capacity of the Spirit of God's discernment on the shelf and you go seek to settle before unbelievers. What is Paul saying? Shame on you. Shame on you. So folks, when conflicts are present, realize that the Spirit of God indwells every believer to give us discernment and a capacity that is, in a sense, it's hard to put this in words. In a sense, our capacity is turbocharged by the presence of the Spirit so that we have insight and gifts of discernment and knowledge that help us to wrestle with complex issues. So Paul is saying we have these future roles that should in some way impact what we are doing today. Then verse 4 is a difficult verse to translate and to understand. He says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Okay, and I think it goes back, things of this life. That's what the end of verse 3 is indicating. If you have disputes about such matters, meaning there's conflict. Okay, he's not condemning conflict. He's saying how the conflict is dealt with is what is critical. If you have such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. The New American Standard puts it in this way. It says, do you appoint those who are of no account in the church, which is probably, in that translation, leaning towards the idea of unbelievers, people that don't have standing as brothers and sisters in Christ, or, as the New International takes it, it, it could be referring to even those who are least gifted Christians, even those of little account in the church, which would then seem to indicate this, that the average Christian who has the Spirit of God living within them is more capable of helping with settling disputes in the body of Christ than is someone who is outside of the body of Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? Take the, take the most basic person in the body of Christ who is indwelt with the Spirit of God, and I think the understanding here is who is yielded to the power of the Spirit of God. It would be better to take the problem that you're wrestling with and put it before a brother or sister in Christ who has the indwelling Spirit, who is living yielded to the Spirit of God, it's better to do that than it is to take it out and air dirty laundry out in public. Now, any, anyone who, who lives in the context of a family, which presumably is all of us here, okay, knows that
that it is kind of a shameful thing to take dirty laundry from inside the house and to air it out in a public fashion. There's just, in your heart, there's something that's wrong with that. And what Paul is appealing to here as he challenges the church to understand that they are competent and qualified to resolve conflict, therefore should play an active role. What he's saying is you guys are family. You are family. You should be able to sit down and work through this stuff. And my challenge to us as a church, to us as individuals in the body of Christ, is to remember that two Christians who love Christ and bow to the same authority, and I think that is key, two Christians who love Jesus and who bow to the same authority can work out any problem. You know what the, the issue often is? It's our pride, isn't it? We say, how dare you, or who do you think you are, instead of saying, God, maybe, maybe, you want to speak to me through Kathy Halpin. Maybe you want to speak into my life through Sue Hacker. Okay, we're so quick to throw up the defense, aren't we? Someone comes and says, I think this, this, and this. And we're so quick to kind of out of hand put aside the input that a brother or sister is giving to us. When we do that, without measuring it and weighing it, is this from God? What are we doing? We're saying, theologically, I know the Spirit of God dwells in you, Kathy, but I don't care about what he's saying in your life. Paul's saying it is foolish for us to ignore the benefit and blessings that come, even from someone who may be in the eyes of the church at large of lesser account, because with the indwelling spirit, they can be more effective than the most intelligent, highly trained lawyer in New Jersey. They may have better things to say and speak into your life than someone who has a big degree that makes them a doctor. Don't underestimate the power, the blessing that we can be in each other's lives as we work our way through times of conflict. So, Christians shouldn't go to public court. They are competent to play an active role in conflict resolution. Uh, third, this thought. And this, this is just really by way of application of the second. Christians, by virtue of who they are, are responsible to play an active role in conflict resolution. So what does Paul say in verse 5? He says, I say this to shame you. What has he just said? Isn't there anybody in the body of Christ who could have helped with that conflict? That, that, that was the church so deficient, so lacking of someone who could help, that you had to rush out into the secular realm. That's the idea here. Okay? Is it true that there is no one present who could have helped with that situation? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? That is powerful, isn't it? Paul's saying, could it be that in a church of the size of the church in Corinth, there is nobody who can help a brother or sister out in their time of struggle? I think it is a rhetorical question that begs for an answer. I think what Paul is saying is that the church is to take an active role when conflict is present. And the question isn't if struggles arise, it's when they arise. Folks, don't think your life is unique because you have struggles and conflicts in it. It is so easy for people to look at their life and say, you know what, I must be the most messed up person on the planet. Okay? The people around you are just as messed up by and large. Okay? Some admit it and some don't. And when we don't admit it, we don't help each other when we minimize the conflicts that are present in our life. We downplay them. We, we send a message to others, you know what, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't deal with that kind of stuff. 
you live in the context of more than one person, this is an issue that you need to learn to deal with. And God wants us as Christians to take an active role. Matthew 18 gives us the pattern for this kind of involvement. Uh, why don't you turn back there real quickly with me. Matthew chapter 18 <clears throat> lays out the pattern for how we are to engage actively in helping with resolving conflicts. And this is advice that is just simply wise. It's just simply wise. It's just the wisdom of God. Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, if he gives you cause for dispute, conflict, or a lawsuit, context a brother or a sister in Christ. If someone within the context of your family, your church family, sins against you, go and show him his fault between the two of you. Don't go and talk to everybody else about it. Natural human tendency. If I'm offended, I want to build my case. And I want to build it with other people at the expense of the person who has injured me. Jesus says this, go to them alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Meaning you have settled the rift that was driving you apart. You have come back together. You have unity. That's the blessing. But if he will not listen, you go and they, they totally out of hand reject any attempt on your part to intervene in their life. Take one or two brothers along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why? Because that's what the Old Testament teaches, doesn't it? Let everything be settled in the eyes of two or three witnesses. Why take them? Because it is likely that when you bring more of the body of Christ to bear on a situation, that brother or sister who is living in error will be drawn back towards righteousness because they will see that their conflict, their area of sin, isn't just an issue between them and another individual, but between them and a few others who are listening to the situation and discerning by the power of the Spirit of God the true nature of the situation. So there's this idea of active involvement. Verse 17. If this individual still refuses to listen to the two or three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as a pagan and a tax collector. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the same thing Paul said in, second, in 1 Corinthians 5, which we talked about last week. There are times when a, a, a distancing between yourself and a brother or sister in Christ is the appropriate step that will cause them to realize that sin is serious, that conflict is serious, and must be dealt with. And it must be dealt with in the context of church family where God has given competent people who are able to engage in a biblical process that protects the reputation of the body of Christ. Folks, ultimately, what, what's important about what Paul is saying here? Why does this really matter? That's the question that starts to emerge. Why is Paul so jacked up about lawsuits? I believe it's this. I believe it's that Paul understands that conflict in the body of Christ is exceedingly dangerous. In verses 6 and 7, here's what he says. He said, instead, instead, instead of settling a dispute between believers, one brother goes to law, to court, against another. And then he adds this. And this, going to court, having a dispute, in front of unbelievers. In front of people that don't know the Savior and who desperately need to see the glory of Christ. And that judge is sitting there. That arbitrator is sitting there watching two people who are professing Christians in Christ go at each other's throats with complete disregard for the love of Christ that is to be expressed in the context of the body of Christ. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I can't believe you're doing this. 
particularly in the context of a world that so desperately needs to see the glory of Christ. So my fourth thought this morning is this. When Christians live with conflict or unsettled disputes or seek to settle conflicts in unbiblical ways, it damages not the church, even though that is true. What it damages is the reputation of Christ. Folks, we live in a world that watches Christians. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking to see if your professed faith in Jesus Christ actually makes a difference. If you are married, husband and wife, and you live in the secular world, I can guarantee you this. The secular world around you is watching to see if Jesus Christ makes a difference. If you're a parent with children, the secular world is watching to see how you resolve conflict in the context of your home because they want to know if Jesus works. If he makes a difference in how you respond to the troubles that they face because they have the same conflicts you and I have. They live in the same kind of flesh that you and I live in. Have the same self-centered tendencies that you and I have. And they are watching to see if Jesus Christ makes a difference. I believe this at, at, its, at the root level is what Paul is concerned about. This church is gaining a reputation for division, verse 6. This lack of love was being put on display in the context of those that do not know the Savior. And I believe it is for that reason then in verse 7 that Paul says this. The very fact that you have lawsuits, which means what? You have legal action against each other, which anticipates what? There's been a bit of a flow. There was some type of a disagreement or contractual dispute that was talked about, unresolved, and now has been thrown into the context of a public court instead of before the church. That's the flow. Some type of a contract, a debate about the details, and then it's thrown past the God-given arbiter of trouble between brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the church where the Spirit of God dwells. Why? Where, what does Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered, where is Jesus? He's in the midst. So after you get, going, get done going to an individual alone, what should you do? Take two or three others. Why? Because Jesus says, I will be present in that setting. I will bring my blessing. Folks, you will not find that in secular court. You will not find that. And what, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying it's sad that Christians can have a contract, have a dispute about the details of it, and then throw it into the context of people that don't have the Spirit of God, don't have the discernment of God, don't know the love of God, don't know what grace is all about. It's just going to be carried out to the letter of the law because that's all that matters in the secular realm. See, in the Christian context, the, the, the rules are different. Grace is present. And understanding that people will mess up from time to time is present. So the goal isn't to throw them down the stairs and to get the most out of the situation I can. That's the secular court. The Christian place for settling disputes is based upon grace. And when Christians fight and ignore that, they do damage to the reputation of the Savior. When we as Christians have conflicts and we resolve them in ungodly ways, we gossip about it and create a bad reputation for the church. What are we doing? We're doing damage to the body of Christ. In conflict, I have a choice. I can protect my own rights or I can protect the reputation of Christ. If I make my rights the most important thing that I'm going to protect, 
then verse 7 applies. Notice what Paul says. The very fact that you have lawsuits, that you've gone from a contract to a dispute to legal action, the very fact that you have that among you means that you have been, and this is strong, you have been completely defeated already. Wow. Why? Well, presumably, if you think this through, if you go into a court setting, two people, okay, and the judge is going to determine which one is right, okay, presumably, one of the two is going to be declared having taken the proper position, the other one's going to take the improper position. What is Paul's assessment of it, though? He says both of you are already defeated. Isn't that fascinating? He said, you can win the lawsuit and lose. You can win the dispute in a public setting and lose. Why? Because of the damage that is done to the reputation of Christ. Fascinating, isn't it? When we allow conflict to stay or resolve it in unbiblical ways, it damages the reputation of the Savior. Because going to court against a brother or sister in Christ constitutes a denial of our Christian distinctiveness. People see Christians entering into conflict, resolving it in the way that the rest of the world resolves it. You know what they're thinking? Jesus, your Jesus makes no difference. So why would I want your Jesus if he makes no difference in your life? The last thought I leave you with arises out of verse 7. When conflicts arise and are resolved properly, God is glorified. When conflicts arise and are resolved properly within the context and boundaries that God's word establishes, God is glorified. Ken Sanda in his book on peacemaking quotes from 1 Corinthians 10.31 in terms of conflict. He says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God. Whatever conflict you're facing, engage in it in a way that craves, that seeks God's glory. That when it's all said and done, God's reputation will not be damaged. Folks, the world around us isn't surprised that we have trouble. They're not surprised that in the context of your marriage, you have spats and debates and arguments from time to time. They're not surprised by that. But if you let that dispute fester and end up in court, or if you let that dispute fester and divide your family, then the world around you will hold you to the standard of the Word of God and say, I thought you were a Christian. Christians don't settle things like that, I thought. So we have to be careful that we fight for the biblical standard in terms of resolving conflict. Verse 7, end of the verse. Here's what Paul says. Okay, and I'll just read the verse. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. What's the alternative, Paul? And notice what Paul says. This is, this is like all the cards on the table. Paul says, why not rather be wronged, defrauded, why not rather be cheated? Now, what is Paul, why is he raising those questions? What is Paul saying this? Wouldn't it be better for you to lose a little bit money of money so that the reputation of Christ could be protected? Wouldn't it be better to, okay, yeah, they did say that about you, but you can't prove it. Wouldn't it be better just to let it go? 
so that the name of Christ is not drugged through the garbage, so that the church doesn't look exactly like the world, wouldn't it be wise from time to time to take it on the chin and not have to get back your pound of flesh? That's what Paul's saying. He, he, he's mystified that they would so want their rights that they would throw Jesus down the stairs so that they could win. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there are some things that cannot be overlooked. Chapter 5, clearly, verse 13, is profoundly clear. There are some grievances which cannot be overlooked, and sometimes the church has to take this difficult step of public excommunication. It is, it is I think, unavoidable that that is the conclusion of verse 13. Sometimes that has to happen. But the other thing that Paul's going to argue in this text is that there are some things which can and should be overlooked. He's saying, wouldn't it be better just to take the hit than to have to demand every one of your rights and everyone speak to you properly all the time? So we can become critical. And in Matthew 7 sort of way where Jesus says, stop judging. Stop being so hyper-critical. And at the same time, when he's saying there are things that can be overlooked, He's saying there are things that the church can't overlook. It has a responsibility to guard purity and to guard the reputation of the church. What's the real issue in this text? I mean, the real issue is conflict, but what's the real issue? When Paul says, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather just forget it? Why not? What's the real issue? A couple of thoughts come to mind. Kathy, I see you saying pride, right? Pride's one. How about the issue of trust? If I am defrauded or cheated, obviously speaking monetarily, well, if I let myself be defrauded and cheated, who's going to pay my bills? Isn't that the first question that comes to mind? First question, what is it really? It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust, and it is a matter of love. Because biblical love always talks about sacrifice. So, so I, want to, I want to press you in a direction here. Jesus Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He had something taken from him that is given to us. There is a price that needed to be paid that you and I will never have to pay because he bore its consequence on Calvary. He was defrauded. He was put in a kangaroo court and illegally condemned on false charges. And yet he what? He opened not his mouth. Here's a question I have to ask myself. Is there any of that in my life? Is there anything that looks like that in my life? Because if there is, I can guarantee you this, there will be less conflict in my life and in your life. When I was a young boy, I, uh, I grew up in a, in a, in a bi family business setting. If you've been with me around here long enough, you might have heard me tell this story before. We had a uh, gentleman that had a contract or a, a, a charge account with my dad at my dad's store. And a uh, very large construction corporation. And I think it was, he had a company that went bankrupt. Kind of stuck my dad for the finances of that. A few years later, restarted another company. Had a different person come in and open an account of the new name, not knowing it was the same person. 
went bankrupt again. This was during the seven, late 70s when interest rates were 17 to 20% in that range for uh, business loans. And my dad was kind of out to the maximum at that time because of a building purchase they had made just prior to the serious downturn. This man was a professing Christian. I'm going to guess that it was about five years after all those events. My dad went down with his uh, first heart attack issue, uh, which ended up turn, turned up to be coronary spasms, ended up in the hospital. Grandview Hospital in Saltersville, Pennsylvania, our home area. I went in to visit my dad, who is in bed number two. Number one, I think, being the one right by the door, and number two, the second bed in. As I walked into the room, I realized that the man laying beside my dad in bed number one was the man who had defrauded him. I did the Christian thing. I just ignored him. <laughs> he doesn't deserve for me to say hi, no matter how sick he is. I remember getting beside my dad's bed and my dad saying to me, say hi to Mr. So-and-so. I'm thinking, no. But here's the thing. When you're being held accountable in that kind of setting, it's hard to continue to sin, isn't it? So he said, hey, you need to say hi. Oh, look. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve for me to say hi. Now, folks, what did Jesus Christ do for us? He took the hit that we deserve. He took the punishment for my sin in spite of his perfection. And when I don't express that kind of love and grace to others, I do damage to the reputation of the gospel itself. If the gospel doesn't allow Tim Hoff to forgive Mr. So-and-so who ripped off my... If it doesn't allow me to do that, who am I to say that my eternal debt of sin is covered by Christ? How do you... It's hypocritical, do you understand? It's hypocritical to hold a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ or to take them into court and do damage to the reputation of Christ while saying, I am forgiven by grace. It's hypocritical. And Paul's just calling out to the church saying, wouldn't it be better to be defrauded, to be cheated? It's, and, and when you get to 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Jesus, even though he was rich, yet for our sakes became what? Poor. He had damage done to him so that we might be rich. So it's not simply about saying hi to Mr. So-and-so. It's going over and talking to him. It's not about, he's, okay, I'm just going to write you off. I'm not going to take you to court. I'm not going to punish you. That is not the Christian way. It's also a restoration to fellowship because that is what Christ does for us. And the gospel comes right to the center of conflict resolution. He became poor that we might become rich. He comes right to the center of every conflict. Look at the cross. Ask yourself, if he is taking what I deserve, then why can't I take part of what they deserve and forgive them and resolve the situation in a way that glorifies God? Sometimes that'll mean looking past certain parts, certain details as the situation is resolved. 
It'll mean taking a little bit on the chin so that God's glory can be protected. It'll mean that with my wife, I'm not so stinking picky. Or with my kids, I'm not so demanding. Or with friends at church, I'm not, that you didn't say hi to me. I mean, we, we let things, but, but then there are times when there, you need to bring in a brother or sister. That's the clear teaching of the Word of God. We are competent to help each other because we have the Spirit of God living in our midst. We have the cross of Christ casting its shadow over every discussion about conflict resolution saying, grace, grace, grace. May God help us. In conflict to protect the reputation of Christ, to honor the glory of the cross. Because Christianity, as one writer has said, is not something you put in a box and bring it out on Sunday. It is your life. It is your life. It's how you handle disputes when they arise in the context of your daily life. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself so that you don't grow weary in the conflict and throw in the towel. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If you don't know Christ this morning, my challenge to you this morning is this. There is a Savior who you have deeply offended by your sin. But he stood on a cross and took the hit that you deserve so that you could be forgiven. So that one day when you stand before him, he won't pull out the judgment book and say, you did this, this, and this, and this. One day he'll pull out the judgment book and say, you know what? It looks like all your debts are paid. It looks like the debt of death for your sin has been taken care of by grace through faith in Christ. Welcome home. Welcome home. And if you've never trusted him, my challenge to you this morning is flee to the cross. Oh yeah, but God's got to be mad at me. Yeah, he's very mad at you. But he says, whosoever will may come and be forgiven by grace through faith. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you this morning for your word.